Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Journey Through History Book Club for September 6th, 2022. My name is Brad Snyder, substitute host for the evening. Um, tonight's book is, uh, what is it? The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. And to get things going, our facilitator, Don Queen, has provided a file for us to listen to. So I'm going to go ahead and get it started. Here we go. Is September the 6th, 2022, and this is Accessible World Journey Through History. Book for this evening is The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz by Kurt Larson. Bradley Snyder assisted in engineering this program, and, and Alan Lemley is hosting it tonight. Again, thank you. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. here this evening is the best-selling Eric Larson. He is the author of five national bestsellers, Dead Wake, In the Garden of Beasts, Thunderstruck, The Devil in the White City, and Isaac Storm, uh, which have collectively sold more than nine million copies. Of course, the book we are here for is titled The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. There are a million different stories you could tell if you wanted to tell a World War II story, and yet you've chosen to tell a story about Churchill's first year. How come? Well, it's really not the first year that drew me to the story. I was drawn to this story by uh, a very specific question, which came to me after I moved from Seattle on the west coast of the U.S. to New York City. And I had this epiphany that 9-11, as experienced by New Yorkers, was about an order of magnitude different than what anybody else had experienced, even though you might have watched the collapse of the towers live on television. And that was yeah, obviously you could hear and see and smell things, but really that sense of violation of your home city. I started thinking, 
what would that have been like to have been in London when essentially, you know, the first phase of the Blitz, there were 57 consecutive nights of bombing, metaphorically 57 consecutive 9-11s, followed by six months of intensifying air raids at intervals. And I, I just started thinking how, I mean, 9-11 threw us in the world for a loop. I mean, how do you deal with something like this on a nightly basis? And how do you deal with it? You know, in Churchill's case, when you're running one half of a world war, you've got your family to worry about. His, his youngest living daughter at this point at this point is 17. Because May 10, 1941, which was the end of his first year as prime minister, was when this, this first most important uh, German air campaign came to an end. We should remind people, 9-11, of course, killed about 3,000 people in New York. Yes. But the blitz that you talk about in this book, 40,000 dead? Over 40,000. 40,000. Yeah, and over 50,000 seriously injured. Shocking. Beginning in the fall of 1940, London was subjected to a brutal campaign of bombing by Nazi forces. It was called the Blitz. As Western Europe fell, Britain held the line. Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them? And Winston Churchill led the charge to keep calm and carry on. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Eighty years later, Eric Larson's retelling of these events may be the most riveting account yet. The day he became prime minister was the best day of his life, no matter that the world was going to hell. Let's go back to May 10, 1940. Churchill, summoned by King George VI, asked to replace Neville Chamberlain as prime minister of the country. How was Churchill viewed at that time by the king? King did not care. Well, I don't know how he felt about Churchill personally, but as, as a likely next prime minister, he was not pleased. He did not want him to be to be chosen at, to, to, to become prime minister, even though the king, of course, was the one who was going to be in charge of it. But for the first few months, no, he was he was concerned. How complex Churchill was. He was in financial straits. Well, a lot of people thought he drank too much. He was uh, a bully. You describe how for Christmas, for example, they carefully worded, you know, request that they could possibly have some days off. And he scrawled no across it and said, if I'm working, you're working. People kept trying to quit and he wouldn't let them quit. Well, first of all, let's talk about his flaws. And then let's talk about the, the, the heroic side of things. You know, this is a guy who was deeply inconsiderate to his staff. He had this cadre of private secretaries, one of whom is a, a key character in the book, John Colville. Well, he, he, he was deeply inconsiderate. Uh, he had no sense of what it was like to intrude on their time or their lives. He could be very rude. And yet they loved him. They loved him because, first of all, he was a lot of fun. Also, he was heroic. He was confident. He, he was courageous. And I think that is sort of how he appeared to his staff, why his staff came to love him, is exactly why the British populace took so much strength from him. Behind Churchill's inspiring speeches was an eccentric character. At times, he would lash out at his staff. He could be angry one moment and jolly the next. And in the midst of war, Larson says Churchill even had a playful side. At the prime ministerial country home checkers, uh, one evening, actually, after one of these fabulous dinners there, Churchill, in his blue siren suit, which is a pale blue one-piece suit that made him honestly look like a, like an Easter egg, hmm. in the siren suit, but also in his flaming 
gold red dragon dressing gown. He picks up a Mannlicher rifle with a bayonet. There is martial music playing on the gramophone, and he proceeds to do bayonet drills hmm. in front of all his guests in the Great Hall at, at Checkers. We think of Churchill today as this paragon of, of leadership, which in many ways he is, but and we sometimes think of him as the guy who won World War II all by himself and so forth. But at the time he was appointed prime minister, there was a good deal of conflicting opinion about what kind of guy he was, what kind of character, and whether he was going to galvanize things or really screw things up. And in some respects, he's a bit like the the Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders. I mean, he's the, he, he's 65 at the time, but if you take age inflation into account, it's almost like being in your high 70s back then. <laughs> well, yes, except that one thing I would say um, that, that came through to me very clearly in my own research into, into Churchill was that that man, while not what we would describe today as, as fit, because he never went to the gym, you know, never. He was incredibly vital, active, and, and quick. I mean, this man, when he led people walking through Bomb City, this guy moved fast, you know, and he, one of the secretaries, John Culver, reports this, this period, this moment when Churchill led him on a tour of the construction of what we know today as the Churchill War Rooms. And Churchill was leaping from girder to girder to girder and so forth. But yes, he was, in fact, in his mid-60s. And today, that, of course, would have been like mid, mid-40s. But he was <laughs> in his mid-60s. Right on. Uh, the relationship with America was, of course, absolutely key to his being able to yes. successfully prosecute this war. And when he took over as prime minister, the father of the future president, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, Joseph Kennedy was the ambassador yes. uh, to the United Kingdom. Yes. How did the two of them get on? Joseph Kennedy was very skeptical about Britain's prospects. And this annoyed Churchill no end. Annoyed not just Churchill, but people, others in his government, others in, in, in London. And happily, Joe Kennedy got replaced by another fellow, Wynant, who was much more to Churchill's liking. But the important thing I found, and yeah, as an American coming to this, this subject, I think I at least emphasize the, the courtship of America perhaps more than other scholars might, because to me it became very clear the extent to which Churchill, from the very first week of his prime minister, and understood that Roosevelt's participation, America's participation in the war, was vital to any hope of victory on the part of Britain. So much so that there is this moment um, in that first week when uh, Churchill is shaving. He was still living in Admiralty House. He hadn't moved yet into 10 Downing Street because he wanted to give Chamberlain, the former prime minister, time to graciously leave and move on elsewhere. So he's shaving. And um, his son Randolph is sitting behind him. They're talking about the war. And his son Randolph is very skeptical also and says, but, but, but essentially, essentially dad, he never called him dad, but essentially dad, you know, how, how are we, how, how could you possibly hope to win this war? Churchill throws his razor into the sink, whirls around and says, I shall drag America in from day one. From day one, that was his strategy. And we have to remember, again, we look at this story so much from, the point of view of we know how it all turned out. But at the time, 1940s an election year in the United States. Yes. And the Republicans have a very isolationist point of view. Very and Franklin Roosevelt can't get, as they say today, too far out over his skis or he's going to lose the election. Right. How do they well, negotiate well, all that? Also, also importantly, importantly um, Franklin Roosevelt kept to himself, very, very closely kept to himself, a clear declaration of whether he was going to run or not until really very close, close to the election. But yes. The political situation was very clearly one where 
he could not step out too far or or politically be be crushed because of this isolationist stance. And 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 Churchill, Churchill <coughs> to some extent recognized that. He didn't, I don't think he had the fullest recognition that he might have. And there is still a certain amount of miscomprehension between the two the two uh, the two governments. But um, yeah, that was a, a real a real fundamental thing that Roosevelt had to worry about. Let's set this up with an excerpt uh, from the book. When Britain declared war against Germany on September 3rd, 1939, the government prepared in earnest for the bombing and invasion that was sure to follow. The code name for signaling that invasion was imminent or underway was Cromwell. The Ministry of Information issued a special flyer beating the invader, which went out to millions of homes. It was not calculated to reassure. Quote, where the enemy lands, it warned, there will be most violent fighting. When the attack begins, it will be too late to go. Stand firm. Church belfries went silent throughout Britain. If you heard bells, it meant that parachute troops had been sighted nearby. At this, the pamphlet instructed, disable and hide your bicycle and destroy your maps. If you owned a car, remove distributor head and leads and either empty the tank or remove the carburetor. How are people in Britain at this time feeling about their fate given this? Well, see, this is one of the things also that came through to me. The certainty among um, most of the population that Britain was going to be invaded by Germany, and not just at some point in the distinct future, but conceivably tomorrow. I mean, the prospect of seeing German paratroopers, you know, landing in Hyde Park or, you know, landing in the next door field while you're pruning your roses was very, very real. And if you can imagine that being the sort of the backdrop, the the air campaign where you're being bombed, this is after the so-called blitz actually began. Well, I often find it hard to imagine just how terrifying that must have been to have bombs falling every night. And then, you know, the full awareness that once that's, you know, once that succeeds or, or doesn't, but once it succeeds as people sort of expected it might, Germany was going to invade. Mm. And they weren't going to mess around when they invaded. <laughs> what's, uh, what's equally fascinating about your book is that you're not just telling the story from the side of the United Kingdom. You've got... Uh, you're into Hitler's head. You're into Goebbels' head. You're into Hess's head, and, and just, especially Hermann Goering. And Goering, indeed. And apparently, you tell us Hitler really didn't consider a full-scale invasion of Germany until months after Churchill took over, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the reality that Hitler was very anxious about the idea of invading England, um, invading Britain, um, because he had other plans. For one thing, he, he had aspirations um, toward the east, toward the Soviet Union, and he did not want to have this second front behind him. But he was also just anxious about the prospect of a of an amphibious invasion in general. I mean Germany did not have a particularly strong navy, strong navy suited to this this kind of thing. But they did have the Luftwaffe um, because of this anxiety about trying to cross the channel with a you know with an armed force. He became convinced largely by the efforts of Hermann Goering, who founded uh, this Air Force and this was his beloved Air Force. Hermann Goering promised that the Luftwaffe could achieve, first of all, air superiority over Britain in no time, and then could proceed, bring Churchill to the negotiating table, which is what Hitler really wanted for the first few months of Churchill's prime minister. Churchill's defiance, his persistent defiance, brought Goering and Hitler, especially Hitler, to the point where enough is enough. Hitler, until that point, explicitly forbidden bombing raids against central London, against civilian centers of population, because he did not want to further galvanize resistance by Churchill and, and, and the British. But 
since he was getting nowhere, then the decision finally was, okay, forget it. You know, we're going to bomb the hell out of London. And they proceeded to do so. That's the first deliberate raid against London being on September 7th, 1940. I presume you have imagined this. Because you describe it so, uh, I mean, amazingly in the book. The day skies, because they didn't bomb at night at first, right? They came in the daytime. And the skies are absolutely filled, virtually every square inch, with German planes getting ready to bomb. Yes, yes. Yeah, Can yeah. you imagine what that must have looked like? Well, you know, I actually, I actually repeatedly tried to imagine this. I spent a lot of time in London. I would check into, my, you know, check into my favorite hotel, and I would often find myself musing, you know, looking out over the horizon, let's say at, at, at dusk, and and you know, very you know, lovely, clear night now, you know. But can you imagine looking out that window and seeing, you know, hundreds of, of bombers filling, just filling the sky? And knowing what's going to what's going to come next, that the first thing is going to happen, they're going to drop incendiaries to start setting things on fire, so that they light the path for other bombers. That these raids, more than likely, are going to last all night. I mean, to me, it's incomprehensible how people confronted that situation. But of course, having ventured into the research into that territory, I mean, I, I understand now how they kind of came to terms. And Churchill himself would go up to the roof and watch. This is one of the things I really came to appreciate about Churchill. I mean, the man was, I, I do believe, fearless. You know, when most people, when most sane people, I'm not saying he's insane, <laughs> but when most sane people would, would dive for cover into the nearest shelter, Churchill, more often than not, would climb to the nearest roof to watch an unfolding raid. And he would bring staff or guests with him up to watch, watch the raid. One particularly, uh, I found compelling moment, this gives you a sense of who Churchill was, and his steadiness and his also his intellectual heft. Um, in one case, he, he takes a, a group of people up to the, the top of a, a nearby building to watch a raid unfold. And in the midst of this raid, he quotes Tennyson. He quotes a poem by Tennyson that sort of forecasts aerial attack. There's a passage in the book where you quote Churchill's secretary, John Colville, watching the bombings. And he wrote in his diary, Never was there such a contrast of natural splendor and human vileness. Now, obviously, that line resonated with you so much that you made the title of the book that line. That line resonated with me, yes. And, and, and I, literally, when I first read that passage, the title came to me and it stuck with me for four and a half years. The passage, the passage in which he, he concludes by making that observation is a beautifully written passage where he talks about observing a severe air raid, particularly severe air raid, from a bedroom window, which of course is what one does, right, <laughs> from a bedroom window. And, uh, and he was just struck by how spectacular the night was, the, 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 you know, the, the, the sound of gunfire, the searchlight sweeping the sky, explosions, this, that, and the other thing. And what a contrast between this, this, this natural splendor and human vileness and this intense, the splendid and the bond. Mm. America was obviously shocked and appalled when Pearl Harbor was invaded. Yep. But we have to, I guess, assume that Churchill was secretly thrilled. Fair to say? Not so secretly. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, Churchill more, uh, Churchill more than anything wanted the United States to join the war as a belligerent. I mean, he courted Roosevelt, he courted America, as he himself said at one point, as I'm going to fracture this quote, but basically the point was he, he courted Roosevelt as ardently as any lover. And Pearl Harbor was 
for Churchill, uh, uh, I'm not exaggerating, was a gift from the gods. Because he had to get America into the war. He had to get America into the war, and it just was not happening as fast as he had expected. He was hoping for something better sooner, but this this worked. And again, take us inside American politics, because Roosevelt wanted to be helpful, but you know, America was not in the war before Pearl Harbor, so there was limits on what he could do. America wanted wanted to be helpful. Roosevelt wanted to be helpful. He understood the political situation. He was as helpful as he possibly could be. He, he made various efforts to provide extensive aid. Um, nonetheless, uh, not, not the least of which was to support um, and promote the, what became known as the Lend-Lease Act, which was an incredibly important act of legislation in terms of aiding Britain. But still, from 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 Churchill's perspective, it was not it was not enough. And the most important thing was that the Lend-Lease Act. Yeah, that was a, that was an act passed uh, after tremendous controversy, which was essentially to provide as much aid as possible to Britain without Britain having to pay for it until some obscure later point. And it was not a slam dunk. I mean, it didn't pass the Senate. What did it was not at all a slam dunk. It was the Senate. Yeah, yeah. And, but when it, when it passed, it was a very, very important thing. And that led to a whole, whole other part of the saga that to me was particularly interesting was where Roosevelt sent over in January of 1941, before Lend-Lease was packed, he sent one of his first emissaries, Harry Hopkins, his close friend, a guy who lived in the White House, to sort of See what's really going on, you know, behind the the rhetoric and so forth. But after Len Lease was packed, he sent Avril Harriman, as he referred to him, his Len Lease expediter, you know, nominally there to sort of determine who got what and how it was used and so forth. But really, once again, to sort of gauge what, what's really going on. What is this? What is this Churchill really like? And Churchill understood the game. Both guys, Hopkins and Harriman. He he kept those guys close. He took them everywhere with him. He showed them everything just to further, like further, like bring this bring this country to to his side. One of the neat things you do in this book is that while you are describing the horrors of the war and the politics behind it and how Churchill is doing what he's doing, you're also telling us about his daughter Mary's engagement and whether that's going to go forward. There are all these details into people's private lives and who's sleeping with whom and all of this other business going on at the same time. How come? Well, those are, well, that's my favorite part of the story. That's how <laughs> I mean, yeah, I really wanted to try to get at, at the day-to-day, how people coped with this situation on a day-to-day basis. You know, when did ordinary life go on? When did it not? And one of my absolute favorite, well, actually my favorite, favorite character in the book is, in fact, Mary Churchill, um, again, Churchill's youngest surviving child. The, the, the Churchills had had um, uh, another daughter early on, Marigold, who had died at the age of two, really you know, tragic, well, death is always tragic, but of sepsis. You know? But anyway, here's Mary, 17. Mary is um, an incredibly bright, incredibly intelligent, vivacious, charming, accurate diarist. She kept a daily diary, um, literally daily diary of of life during this period. And she talks about when her father became prime minister. She talks about her adoration for her father. And she is such an exquisite commentator on the war and so forth. But she's also at intervals having a lot of fun. You know, she talks about her parents had sequestered her at the prime ministerial estate checkers. As parents do, I mean, you know, anxiety, you want to keep your kid kids safe. Now, Mary did not want to be sequestered at this place, and she complained. She wanted to come back to London. Parents were not having this. But while she was at Checkers, she would have 
really quite a nice time. She writes in her diary about sessions with young RAF pilots at the nearby base, the nearby base of snogging in the hayloft. Snogging? Snogging in the hayloft. Translate? <laughs> well, I think you know what that means. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, not, not too far along there. Um, and another practice of, of the RAF pilots that the girls, uh, that Mary and her friends loved was when the pilots won, you know, they would come flying in these bombers and buzz the girls at treetop level. And Mary referred to it as, I guess the girls referred to it this way, as beating up. That was called beating up. Mm. And they loved it. They loved it. And says, yeah. But she also talks about dancing and going to parties and, you know, and, and, and actually uh, for her, a uh, um, um, couple of near misses. That's the thing about the war. And I've had other people in that chair say it, that if you survived the war, it was an amazing time to be alive. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. One, one of my characters actually says that very thing. You know, it was just it was a, a terrific time to be alive. And that character, Pamela Churchill, um, daughter-in-law of Churchill, married, she was married to son Randolph. She was actually afraid. She expressed fear uh, or anxiety about what was going to happen after the war. You know, what was she going to do after the war? She spent all this time living, thinking the war. And what do you do after? You know, and that, that I found very revelatory also. You talked about Mary's diary. Yes. What you didn't mention is you read it, didn't you? Oh, yeah. When you, when you venture into a territory like Churchill, always do the same old, same old, do like a, a mass biography or whatever and hope that in the telling you're doing something that's you know, new and fresh and so forth. But when you open a fresh window on the past, which I, which I, I did, nobody has asked that question. Well, specifically, what did they do during that first period to survive? And so when you open that new window, you find new things and you look at old things differently. And one of the things that I found um, well, I was given access to was Mary Church's diary. And at the time I petitioned for permission to see it, I was, well, after I had one permission, I was one of two scholars, I believe, who had ever actually seen it. And going through this diary, I mean, it was just, I, I, I think, honestly, I think it made the book. I think Mary, Mary very much comes alive, shows herself to be a living, breathing character. And the, the counterpoint throughout all these dreadful events is, is, is I think, very, um, again, very revelatory. I, I love her diary. Let's finish up on this. I wonder how much time you spent during the course of your research thinking about this notion. What if Churchill had been like every other normal person and at the age of 65 had retired from politics yeah. and somebody else had to carry the mantle of that mission for Britain during the war? Okay, so, so yes, so speculative history. I don't engage in speculative <laughs> history, but I have thought about this, um, mainly but in a somewhat different context. Churchill took a lot of risks with his own safety. The way I like to see it is, I mean, he would, Churchill would never have retired, uh, you know, willingly. <laughs> But he took a lot of risks, like, for example, flying to France five times during the war before France fell, five times flying with members of his government in his favorite Flamingo aircraft, two-engine two passenger aircraft, um, through skies filled with, with, with Luftwaffe fighters, you know? I mean, anything could have happened. And plus, plus, flying in that era was not that safe, you know? And Mary, Mary expressed anxiety about him flying all the time, which I felt was a real connection to now and to me because I hate flying. But, you know, if that had happened, you know, who would have taken his place? And I you know 
it's very tempting to say that, that nobody could have done what he did. It's very tempting to say that. I feel, however, that people rise to the times as they are called upon to do. And I feel that somebody would have done likewise. Done likewise? Done likewise in a very different way. Well, Anthony Eden had his shot, and he was a bit of a dud, wasn't he? He was a dud. So I'm not even saying Anthony Eden. I, I, you know, I, I don't, Lord Halifax, I don't even think that necessarily. But maybe somebody, maybe Attlee, you know, who became prime minister later. But it, it, it's speculative. It's so hard to think about that because the, because Churchill was such an amazingly large and vivid character. Indispensable. Mm -hmm. Indispensable character. Mm -hmm. But he was not a great uh, tactician. He was not a great strategist. He was an amazing orator. And he, I think his great strength as a leader, his, his awareness of the power of even the smallest symbolic act. Well, we're always grateful when you make time for us and our viewers and listeners. Uh, when you have a new book out, The Splendid and the Vile is Eric Larson's latest contribution to nonfiction in this world. And we're so glad you spent some time with us at TVO tonight. Thank you. Delighted. When the lights go on again all over the world and the ships will sail again Recording, record, escape. The open file is journey through history for September 6, 2022. Churchill, Eric Larson, 21.wav. Play selection. here yet so <clears throat> and go in descending order so let's see 
course, this will get changed around as y'all mute and unmute. So, well, I can hardly hear you. Oh, okay. Can that's, you hear me? Yep, that's perfect. That's better. All right. Sorry. Brad, um, you were talking a few minutes ago, and I could hear you in the other room, but you weren't coming across. My microphone was muted. What do you, you sound fine about? now. So yeah. I wasn't talking to you. That would do it. <laughs> hmm? I said that would do it. Huh. No, the microphone was muted. Yeah, I know. That's yeah. what I'm saying. That would yeah, make yeah, it yeah. so we couldn't hear you. I did mute it. Oh, did you hear no. me over Zoom? <laughs> no, we didn't hear you during no, the recording. There's a switch on my microphone and I kill it. Because I can't. No, Brad, what my... I'm saying is I could hear you in the house talking, but you weren't. The sound was not coming through the Zoom. Oh, I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> Talking to but anyway, yes. Yeah, anyway, yeah, anyway, anyway, let's much. see. Uh, I'm going to start at the bottom of the list. I got, um, let's see, who's down at the bottom? Well, I got Donald down there. I got Betsy at the bottom of the list. She's muted. I don't know if this is going to work. Is everybody unmuted? And it rearranged my alphabetic order. So, uh, and I just do like I do and go to the top of the list. Because we know that's the unmuted people. <laughs> I got Jenna. You want to go first, Jenna? Oh, okay. Uh, I really like this book a lot. And I at first I kind of thought, oh, my gosh, this book never ends. But, it, of course, it did. But um, I thought that he really brought the characters to life when he talked about the living day-to-day living in London, and he talked about the characters' personal lives. One thing that was interesting to me was I didn't know the history of Rudolf Hess, and I didn't know that he went to Scotland to try to make peace. And I I was surprised by that because it seems like he should have known that that would have made Hitler furious because the Nazis really did not want peace. And so that was one of the things that that kind of surprised me. And um, I got a little bit of a chuckle when he, when um, Churchill found out that Japan had invaded Pearl Harbor and he immediately says, we shall declare war on Japan, on, on, on Japan. And somebody nearby said, my God, it's based on a radio announcement. And so there were just things like that all through the book that were really intriguing. And um, I I enjoyed the book very much. And that's about it. All right. I think next on the. Ladon, you want to go next? Yeah, sure. I think this is a marvelous book. And there's so many stories that can be told about a person who's much larger than life character, you know, as I read these books, uh, one after the other, though, I am struck by how, what a louse his son was. (laughs) Kind of reminds me of Joe Biden's son, you know, and this is, Seems like there's one or more in every family. <laughs> but on the other hand, uh, you're amazed at Mary. Uh, you know, I, I thought she was uh, 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 
wrote in her diaries very articulate and and uh, and she didn't sound like a little girl 17 but she didn't sound like a little 17 year old girl and then when she turned 18 she didn't want to be 18 i don't want to be 18 i want to be 17 i don't want to be an adult and she turned in but it was marvelous time and then she you know she uh joined the service there to uh work in defense and she saw awful stuff at this sort of thing but anyway she's a marvelous a marvelous character in the family as much as her son was a louse uh anyhow the story was really good uh the book is detailed and everything but i suppose that probably for the history group we may have had enough world war ii for this year and other, other than that, that's that's what I got to say today. Thank you. All right. Thank you, LaDon. Next on the list, we have Robert. Robert, would you like to go next? Sure. I don't have much to say other than I really enjoyed the book, especially hearing from the, the excerpts from the diaries, both from Mary and from his personal secretary. That really made it, gave me a real feel for what the people were thinking at the time. Great book. All right. I believe next on my list is Betsy. I really enjoyed the book. I, I loved the diary quotations like Robert just said. And I also enjoyed the different perspectives we got of the the people. I loved it when the, they would try to leave Churchill and Hugh didn't want them to go. And then finally he would let them go their way, but always tried to get them back. And it was just, I just loved it. I never get tired of World War II stuff, but I understand people are ready for something new. I believe next we have uh, Sherry Wells. Yes, uh, I thought this was a great book. I don't think you can go wrong with Eric Larson. Um, I've read a number of his books, and every one of them is just as good as this one. Um, I didn't know about Hess either. I thought that was really interesting. I would have liked to have known more of the what happened afterwards with him. Uh, I thought the family stuff was really interesting. I thought it was funny with Churchill. It made me think of Lyndon Johnson when he make people talk to him when he was in bed or on the toilet and stuff like that. It, <laughs> surely there's not a lot of guys that do that, but <laughs> at least there's at least two. Um, and all the human interest stuff was great, um, as well as the war stuff worked in. So it was a great choice. All right. Thank you. Uh, next on my list, I believe I have Liz. Liz, would you like to go? Yeah, sure. Um <clears throat> I did enjoy this book. I'm not a huge uh, fan of reading like World War II history. It, it just doesn't really excite me. But again, it's the human relationships and how it affected people. And and I I loved I loved the human aspect of the book. I think it did really well. Um, I had also read Isaac Storm several years ago, and the same thing. He he really brings the people into the history that they're experiencing. And uh, so you see the you see the world through their eyes and what they were you know, reacting to it. And I, I I just thought it was really fascinating and very interesting. Thanks. Okay, I believe next on my list is Mary Ellen. Oh, having reported on this book for Joni Leonard's Banquet of Books in June, 
I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Um, I've spoken a great deal about Coventry Cathedral, but the first morning we were in London was spent in the war rooms down where all of this was going on. And it is absolutely fascinating to go down about 20 floors into this cavernous museum. And just as you're leaving, you get the sound of the air raid sirens going out off as you leave. You get this, and it is very, very eerie, believe me. But it was a marvelous, marvelous book. And I, too, enjoyed, you know, the uh, thing of, of Mary Churchill and um, Colville and his love affairs and how he couldn't get this one girl to marry him. And uh, it was it was a fascinating book. And that's all. All right. Thank you. Uh, I think next is Sally. I can't remember if we called on you yet. Okay. Um, I really enjoyed this book. My mother was English and was um, living in Leicester, which was about 20 miles from Coventry, during mm. her late 20s, early 30s, during the war. And um, I've heard this story all my life. Um, you know, it's, it's my family history. What I really want to recommend to people um, I think he meant, Eric Larson mentioned some of the writings of the Mass Observation Project. This was a group of selected individuals, just um, people in the community, who were given paper, which was in very short supply, and asked to write down their observations of living day-to-day in wartime England. Um, several of the books are on Bookshare, there is a wonderful compilation of diaries by a woman named, <clears throat> excuse me, Nella Last, L-A-S-T. There is another book um, called A View from the Corner Shop about a woman in Yorkshire. But if you just search um, Bookshare or even NLS, I believe many of these are available. And what I find so interesting is I'm almost 70 now. My mother's been um, dead a few years. There are very few people left who have a living memory of this or a link to a memory living of this. So that's why I'm so grateful that books like this come out and the history isn't forgotten. That's all I have. Thank you. Uh, Kathy, you want to go? Okay. Um I mostly liked the book. I thought it was tedious, um, too much detail, but fascinating. I I didn't know much about um, a lot of this. And and so that part was good. I learned a lot. I just got tired of it uh, and wanted less detail. That's it. That's it. All right. Don, I think you unmuted yourself. You want to? Yes, I did. And uh, thanks for okay, making up, filling in there. Uh, I really like the book, especially I, it's interesting, the little insight on to Hitler, Goering, and Hess. Uh, I, I remember reading about Hess in high school. 
Nobody knew why he came over. It was such a crazy thing, but you kind of understood what he was, and what was, what was interesting. But also, I always—they always the—they always, the, uh, emphasized the casualty rate in London, forty thousand people, a lot of people. I never realized it was that much in the Blitz, and I, I did enjoy the book quite a bit. If I missed anybody, now's your chance to speak up, or if anybody wants to follow up with any further comments or thoughts. Just for someone that wondered about what happened to Hess after the Nuremberg trials, uh, somehow, no one knows how, he got a hold of cyanide tablets and bit, bit on the cyanide tablets. Right. And that's how he ended up. I was wondering about that. Yeah. He Excellent. lived to be 93. Um, can I just say one thing? Did anybody who got the recording catch the end, the very end, with Churchill's Christmas speech? Yes. And it, that was amazing. Um, the difference in his voice from, again, yeah. my, my, my most familiar thing. I hear John Lithgow's voice. For Churchill, but um, yeah, it was amazing. Uh, Which he was, version he was quite that? Eloquent, but yeah. you know, someone wanted to know which version of book that was that you heard his speech on. Oh, it's in Bard. It was, it was in Bard's. Yeah, it was in Bard. Yeah, yeah, that's what they wanted to know. Yeah, and then this is Betsy again. What was the uh, what was the name of the book by last? Whoever gave those other two books? Sally gave them. Nella Last. They were collections um, of writings. What was the name yeah, of the book? You she has Nella Last. It's N E L L A Last, L A S T. She's the, um, the author. There are several um, diaries that she put out, but there's a good compilation on Bookshare of her diaries. Um, there, there are several books like this. They're excellent. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we're looking for more suggestions. I'm trying to find pre-U.S. recent U.S. political history books, although that's more interesting right now. But if anybody has any suggestions, I'm open, open for it. You know, I had wondered, and I had talked to Sherry, so I, I had wanted to suggest several times that we read Isaac's Storm. It's all about the um, 1900 hurricane that devastated Galveston. Yep. It's also oh, an Eric yeah. Larson book, but it is a very, very powerful book. Um, but I don't know if you want to do another one by Eric Larson so soon. Well, certainly I, a change I, of pace. Yeah. I also, I can't think of the title, but there's a pretty good book of after the Lincoln assassination, um, how they uh, they traced uh, his name slipped down my mind. Uh, his assassin, Booth? you know, 
Anyway, that booth. yeah, booths. Yeah, yeah uh, how they booth. suggest booths. That's a, it's a really. Uh, I can't think of the name of the book, but if you, if that's an interesting subject, is follows that and how some of them got rewards for the his caption and how they spent the rewards, reward money. About, it was very what interesting. About, what about the Greater Journey by David McCulloch, who just died? about a month ago it's available both on audible and bard and uh oh that's one of the most beautiful books i've ever read it's just what's it about fast it's what it's it's about paris from about 1820 until about right before world war ii and the people who went to learn there and it's all the americans from oliver wendell Holmes senior to to samuel morris to winslow homer i mean all of these fascinating people that you don't think did this and and emma willard did this alone in 18 around 1830 i mean it's just a fascinating book He's a good writer. Sounds like you're getting some good suggestions, Don. Yes, I think we already picked one. <laughs> so later, but um, this uh, that's good to get some. And uh, we want to get out. I I had looked at uh, the, the Peloponnesian Wars, but that's a little too 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 many. If you haven't read Greek history or familiar with the geography, it's. It's a little hard to, <laughs> to take, I think. But, but. Donald, what time period again are we looking for? Any time. Okay, just not World War Two. Mm. Oh no, no, that's what I. We, well, you know, your better writers are writing in there. Participants left pair and yeah. eleven right pair. But John yes. The meeting. Well, I've discovered. Um, I heard this author on Coast to Coast AM, if any of y'all listened to anything in the middle of the night, she wrote a book, her name's Sally Denton. And so she wrote a book on the colony, which is, um, do y'all remember in 2019 that uh, polygamous uh, cult group down in Mexico and the women, those three cars of women got slaughtered? Well, I got the book, so I'll read <laughs> I'll make say no, it's too terrible. But and I read another one of her books. She's written a, a lot of history books and they're easy reads. Um, but I read one called The Pink Lady that I got from the library and I was bored with it. And it was a woman called Helen Gahagan Douglas, who was a senator in uh she was FDR's uh senatorial uh, supporter and then she got Nixon um, there were people against her and she lost to Nixon in 1950 yeah, yeah that's right very famous in California well very and, famous um, the book was just dry but it might be better if you're listening to it and then I just thought it was about women and then her her professional time was 40 in the Senate, I believe, uh, was 44 to 50. Yeah. 
So um, anyway, she was an actress first, a stage actress, and she had a very interesting life. But the book is um, by the same author, Sally Denton. So um, after I read The Colony, I may recommend it because her interview was fantastic. It's Denton, D-E-N-T-O-N, Sally, S-A-L-L-Y. And that one was the pink lady about Helen Gahagan Douglas. And her newest one is the colony about the polygamous Mormon women that got murdered. That was in Mexico, huh? Down in Mexico, right. Apparently, it has to do with the cartels and the drug war. And that one of the leaders of the polygamous cult they have our agriculture there and they were growing um let me think pecans or almonds and using up all the water <laughs> and you know mexico and south texas and texas has you know like a lot of the southwest of california has water problems so that's part of it too but i haven't read fighting over it now yeah. yes I haven't read the book yet, so but it, I mean the interview just sounded fascinating. So, and then I noticed she's written, I don't know, six or eight books about different things. The first Maybe Romney more. Republican was challenged on his presidential because he, was, I think, he was born in Mexico. He was LDS, and he. Yes. Uh, she, she says in the interview that his family a long time ago was part of the polygamous cult because they broke away and went to Mexico when Utah outlawed polygamy so that they could become a state. And so his, I don't know, grandfather, great-grandfather uh, came out of that poly polygamous cult, Romney's did. But there's two polygamous cults down there. So one that's more normal and the other one that's less normal. And um, I guess, anyway, I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know that about Romney, but that's just, just kind of a tie-in. I mean, he's not polygamous and he, and it's kind of like who cares which grandparents or great-grandparents did, but it was interesting. Another one, uh, I don't know if it's on Bard yet, but I've heard several interviews on history podcasts it's called The Face Maker, F-A-C-E Maker. And it's about uh, um, the first plastic surgeon during World War One in London. Oh, And they talk yeah. about how if you lose a limb, you're a hero. But if you're disfigured, you're shunned mm -hmm. and you lose your livelihood and your oh, family. And sorry about the siren there. Oh, I, yeah, I've heard excellent be, reviews of that. Yeah, it's supposed to be really good. It's called The Face Maker and it's by Lindsay Fitzharris. F-I-T-Z-H-A-R-R-I-S, but I don't know if it's on Bard yet, but it's something to keep on your list, Don. Yeah, Harris, so glad they're recording this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the interviews were really fascinating. About five minutes, Don. Do you want me to go ahead and play the promo for yeah, next month? I was wondering what the time was. Yeah, let's let's do the, um, the right. it's a very short promo, so. All right. It's less than Here five. we go. <clears throat> mm -hmm. 
Isaac's storm, a man, a time, and the deadliest hurricane in history. Library of Congress annotation. Galveston, Texas, September 8, 1900. A massive hurricane approaches the city. Isaac Klein, head of the Weather Bureau's Galveston station, fails to receive advance warning due to bureaucratic blundering and scientific snobbery. No evacuation is ordered, and more than 8,000 citizens are subsequently lost, including Klein's wife. Bestseller, 1999. DB number is 48811, 48811. What's on the spelling for the title is Isaac, I-S-A-A, -A -A, that's two A's, C, and then Storm. The spelling of the author's name is Irek, I-R-E-K, last name, Larson, L-A-R-S-O-N. Neither were in the recorded book. Again, it's DB 48811. Base, Galveston. Was the year of 1900, that was 80 years ago. Death come to Howard on the ocean, and when death calls, you got to go. The Galveston had a seawall just to keep the water down. But a high tide from the ocean, water all over the town. third book I think by this guy yes wow I am surprised at how quickly you responded to my request <laughs> you're uh, psychic Liz I <laughs> that one no, down it, as a record it's just it, it's it's a fantastic I almost book I am so excited to read it again it is very good yeah yeah it gets real tough it's only yeah, nine the, hours and something it's how long, Brad? Nine hours and I can't remember how many minutes. Nine hours and something. Yeah, he, he keeps his 
Well, this is about the time of year for that. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes. We're getting a bit of the climate problem. Yeah. Has anybody noticed that, that that we haven't had many hurricanes this year? Oh yeah. I've been I've been watching Yeah, yeah they've been commenting. Watching for the this is the time of year that they start ramping up though and but, yeah, but, that's yeah, right. No. Yep. Most of the hurricane coverage has been about historical hurricanes, not anything current. So Indeed. that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I did see in the news that there are two developing disturbances in the Atlantic Basin that are heading yeah. northwest yeah. towards the United States. We're not out of the woods. I keep thinking of the song, Wasn't That a Mighty Day? Oh, yeah. Mighty Day. Love that old song. Mighty Day, great God, that morning when the storm winds hit the town. Mm. All right, folks, we're a couple of minutes past the top of the hour. Well, thanks, Don. Wrap it up. Great. 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 Great book choices. Yeah. Thanks. All that right. Is, Friday. Uh, Thank you, Brad. What is the date Bye. next Thank meeting? Thank you. Hey, did I, did I, did I miss anything? Thanks, yeah. everyone. <laughs> there he is. That's what I said to Alan. <laughs> I, for, I, I, forgot all, I forgot all about the meeting. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I get oh yeah. funny. What, what's the, what, what, what's next yeah, month's book? Isaac Storm. Alarm go off. It's db four eight eight one one. Four eight eight one one. Okay. Thanks. Yes. yes. Storm. Thanks. Sorry, really I missed good. it. That's okay. okay. We don't miss meetings. Everybody, take care and stay safe. You too. Yeah. Right. You too. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. All righty. Bye, bye. See everybody next month. Oh, you want to call? John the Wind Rail Bus Lift.